Please remain standing and turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. And no, I have been asked this today already. That is not a typo. Uh, we are going back to the first chapter of, of 2 Peter. Uh, we're, we're not going to repeat all of 2 Peter, uh, but we will be going back to chapter 1 and revisiting some familiar stuff. So 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 is what we will be going over this evening. So, this is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. George Orwell's famous short novel, Animal Farm, tells of a beautiful farm that uprises against their human overlords who oppress them, or who they thought oppressed them, and create a new society. The animals had pushed out their oppressors from outside of their numbers, but the book deals with the slow decay of the animal farm into a different form of oppression. The new society slowly begins to forget, to forget what it once stood for and therefore to change even the most basic definitions of those things that they once knew. Animal farm at its core is really about forgetting and remembering. The sheep, contrary to what you might expect, are actually some of the best at remembering in the story, but they can only remember one simple phrase, the summary of the much more complex philosophy that they could not read or understand. The sheep say continually, four legs good, two legs bad. Throughout the story, these sheep repeat this slogan, and only this slogan, four legs good, two legs bad. Yet after the Four-legged pigs eventually walk on two legs and complete their abusive takeover for rule over the animals, which results in a society even worse than the previous human rule. The sheep change. Having completely forgotten the meaning of the words, four legs good, two legs bad, and let the words become to them a meaningless slogan, Orwell let their last words in the book be them hauntingly shout over and over again, four legs good, two legs better. Four legs good, two legs better. They had forgotten the meaning of even those few words that they had said so often. Had they remembered, had they acted, had they not forgotten, had they listened to their principles and not simply known them as mere precepts, perhaps they would not have been overtaken by the false teachers who had really desired to eat them and to use them for their own sinful desires. Those without memory will be discouraged, they will be demoralized, they will be confused, and they will be taken advantage of. People who want to abuse them will come, as Peter in Second Peter speaks to these demoralized church who had indeed been abused. They had been taken advantage of by false teachers within the church. So as we transition to 2 Peter, we are still dealing, as we were in 1 Peter, 
with persecution, but persecution no longer, especially from outside the church, but from within the church. False teachers. This is a letter written by Peter shortly before his own death, as we know from verse 14 in chapter 1, and it makes that clear. Although we're not quite sure the exact recipients of this letter, when Peter wrote it, the letter is for a discouraged church, one that had forgotten its hope, the greatness of their hope in Christ, as we've seen going through Second Peter. There are false teachers in the midst of this congregation, people Peter calls scoffers in Second Peter chapter 3. These are people who ridicule anything that they don't understand. These scoffers, cynics, and skeptics, these false teachers ridiculed, especially as we've seen in 2 Peter chapter 3, the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and despised any authority that was not themselves, as we've seen in 2 Peter, especially chapter 2. What was Peter's solution to stop these scoffers? The solution that Peter knew before Orwell was, the solution is to remember the truths that you heard. Remember the significance of our gospel and the God of our gospel. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.1, we should remember, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. To remember is not just to call to mind, like Orwell's sheep did when repeating their empty slogan, but to remember the significance of what you know, things that are filled with meaning. So Peter, to jog the memory of these Christians in their precious gifts, says to the common believer in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Peter is pointing them to remembering the gift of faith, to remembering the encouragement of faith, and especially to remembering the preciousness of the gift of faith. Very well, we've spoken about how Peter is writing to a discouraged church who must remember her faith and remember who she is as the church. Well, what is that faith that Peter is talking about here in verse 1? What's it all about? As we go to the first section, this faith is a gift, an obtained faith, not one produced by the subject. This word faith, very quickly, is always something in Scripture with at least three things present. One, a subject, a believer, and second, an object, the thing that is believed in, and three, certain knowledge, some content attached to that object of our belief. A person, that subject, believes something, some knowledge, about an object, let's say a chair. And so that person will act according to that knowledge. So, in Christian faith, the important thing is not in the subject, the person who believes. The important thing is in the object of our faith. And having true knowledge about that object of our faith, whether it's worthy of our faith. That is, in the example of the chair, if we know the chair obviously can't hold our weight, we have knowledge about it, then it's not worth our faith. It's not worth our action to put our weight upon it. But if we know the chair obviously can hold our weight, then it is worthy to put our weight upon it. How do we acquire this knowledge? This knowledge which it really directs our action. This knowledge, this faith that is filled with knowledge. This is obtained, and it said in verse 1. This is an obtained faith. That is, faith is a gift. This Christian faith is a gift. Verse 1, I'll read it again. 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who you are, brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a people of faith, but you have been made a people of faith. This word he uses here for obtain is actually more literally to a lot. This is incredibly significant because in the Old Testament, they would cast lots, things like dice in our own day, for their possessions or in the Old Testament, it was cast for the different allotments for the the 12 tribes of Israel where they were to, to actually stay. Not because they trusted in luck, but because they left the decision completely to God. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. They were told to do this because they knew that fate was a myth. And that the personal God controlled all reality, even what people call luck. Whatever was allotted was a gift given to the person, not because of their merit or skill. What skill is there in throwing dice? But because God gave it to them freely. Casting a lot gave the person no merit in their gift whatsoever. No reason to argue that he got what was allotted to him by skill or by merit or anything that is worthy in him. No, what was given to him was a gift utterly from God and a gift from God alone. That is what this word allot means, who have obtained. But the word allot, with all the gifting that is inherent in that word, must mean that it is something valuable that's gotten. And this is exactly what Peter says here as well, much more explicitly. Peter says that we are allotted, we have obtained a faith of equal standing, says the ESV, with, that is, the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have a faith of equal standing? This translation in the ESV, equal standing, is fine. Peter is saying nothing less than this. As an apostle, as a Jew, there is now no difference in the standing before God between barbarians and the Jews. That is, if you have faith in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ, and we have equal standing before God. Our blessing in Christ is equal and has no basis in being male, female, Jew, Greek, whatever. Salvation only has its basis in Christ. This is contained in equal standing here. But it means much more than merely equal standing in this way. This translation misses the greater point that Peter is making. Equal standing, yes. But why is it significant that the standing of all Christians is now equal? Because the faith that we both have, Peter the apostle and us, to the greatest and the least, is so precious. The word itself actually means equal honor. To have this faith is to be in a position of privilege. The Geneva Bible has it translated this way beautifully. You which have obtained like precious faith with us. That is why it is significant, brothers and sisters, because this standing we both have is precious. If we stood on a mound of trash together and equally all the while, Peter would not be speaking about this and celebrating that fact. This is a precious faith, a precious gift that we have equal standing in that was allotted to us by God, like precious faith with us, as a precious, valuable faith. What makes it so precious? So more reasons than I can count, of course. 
but there are some here that are in the text that ought to be pointed out. It's precious for so many reasons uh, that we often forget as we go to the second section. Precious faith by the precious work of Christ and the whole mysterious Trinity. The precious work of Christ and the Trinity. The miracle Peter explicitly mentions as being done to purchase our faith, as it is precious for all these miracles which were done to purchase our faith, is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the most explicit references to the incarnation of Jesus Christ being both God and man that we find in Scripture. That is, the incarnation It's the wonder of wonder and the miracle of miracles, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, God and man in one, for our salvation that we might have faith. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those who have faith, John 3.16 says it in this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How precious is our faith and our salvation that he was achieved by such an incredible mystery as the incarnation. It was no small event, but world-shifting, world-turning in its effect and its scope, central to all history, and it was for our salvation and our faith. John Murray stops to marvel at this and says, God in uncurtailed godhood, in the fullness of divine being and attributes, and man in the integrity of of human nature, with all its sinless infirmities and limitations, uniting in one person, infinitude and finitude, the uncreated and the created. This is the great mystery of history. And since Christianity is the central and commanding fact of history, it is the mystery of Christianity. As Paul says, the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. And he did this for you and me, brothers and sisters. Those who have been given the gift of faith, those who have faith in him, he did it not for people in general, but with your name in mind, living that he might place your sin in particular, not sin in general upon himself to be sacrificed on the cross, that we might have, after our sin was dealt with on the cross, verse 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon us. And this righteousness is ours by faith. Faith is the instrument by which we have this righteousness, which we find here in verse 1. Notice he says in the text, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have been given, we have been gifted faith. We have been gifted salvation, Christ's righteousness through faith. Here is another precious mystery. He has taken this righteousness and credited it to our account. How does God do this? It is a declaration from the throne. And as a declaration from the throne of God, the king, the only God, it is legally true. Like a deed and title that has been passed upon us by a legal act, now we own all righteousness by the righteousness of Christ. There are innumerable other reasons why this faith is precious. I will list very quickly a few of them before getting to the last. Who gives this merit to us? This is another reason why faith is so valuable. It is given to us by God himself. Often the value of a thing is not intrinsic, but comes from a person who gave it to us. 
Here's another aspect of why faith is so valuable. It is given only to some. It is rare, that is. Narrow is the road, and few are those that find it. Faith is a valuable allotment, which seems few of even those who call themselves Christians have. Here's another aspect of why faith is so valuable. It is unavailable to us. That is, it is impossible to attain apart from it being a gift, an allotment. Here's another aspect of why faith is so valuable. It does something for us. That is, it unites us to Christ, it enlightens us to the truth, and all blessings, in fact, come from Jesus Christ. Faith is precious, as it is the work of the mysterious Trinity. And this is our, the last mystery, the last reason why it is so precious that we will go through today. Let's see why Peter, of all things he could mention, mentions faith first after Christ Jesus in this epistle. What is he combating against that makes faith so important to put toward the forefront? Especially as we know from our time in 2 Peter 3, this faith was assailed by false teachers who scoffed at Jesus and his second coming. They said, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's going on the same way since the beginning, they said. They scoffed in 2 Peter 3. How does Peter respond? He responds by giving to us what he prays for us to have in verse 2, in this verse 2 of chapter 1. Knowledge. He prays, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As we have more, given more precious knowledge of Jesus, we now will go to God, that is God the Father here, and speak of him and the grace that has been given to us as we found in Second Peter 3, as faith is given more content there. Against the so-called knowledge of these false teachers, Peter makes us look upon God, look at God correctly. We know that for Peter, from 2 Peter 3, God is no bare word. God is the absolute God. That is, to God, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The faith of these people was failing because they were being deceived by the scoffers into believing in a God who was not worthy of their faith who had promised to come again in time, and whoops, so they said, he just forgot. Or there was too much oppression, opposition against him. The scoffers said that God had some insurmountable problems against him, as if he were defined by creation, as if he were dependent upon creation. Christian, you want your grace and your peace to multiply in your precious faith, yes, you want to enjoy in the worship and love of God, then let it be upon the proper object, the true God, the absolute God, the God for which there is no irrationality, the God who is clothed in unapproachable light, the God whose word is final and must be final. There is only this type of God, for there is only one God, the triune, absolute, exalted God. And if there is no God of this type, then there is no knowledge possible There is no God, and there is nothing at all. God is above the universe, and his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. These false teachers had no faith in this God. They tried to make God preside accordingly to their timetables, their opinions, and their expectations as creatures. But Christian, faith in this creaturely God is really merely faith in yourself as God. 
God as absolute uproots our expectations as creatures. He is never self-contradictory, and he always fulfills his promises. So that we ought to expect that God has a plan behind every mystery. So our world is logically made by God, but God is above logic and creation, not contradictory or illogical. Our faith is not in something illogical, but is logical in a logical God. This faith utterly separates us from the world who calls faith illogical because they place faith in themselves like these false teachers did. These false teachers tried to destroy mystery, thinking God to be illogical, thinking it to be a problem for God, as if there were contradictions for him. Well, here we have the very confession of Peter magnifying and rejoicing in our adorable mystery. Verse 1, our God and Savior, the man Jesus Christ. Unless this God is the absolute God of mystery, then you are not worshiping the same God. Praise God that he has the reasonable answer for mystery, as Peter answers the false teachers in 2 Peter 3. And let us be creatures who have faith in this God, gifted faith, adorable faith, an adorable object of our faith, that is, the mysterious God. So faith, as Schaefer says, is the empty hands coming to a reasonable God, accepting his free gift of Christ's righteousness, which brings us to our third and final section, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, not even faith, what Peter has been speaking about here in detail in 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, is what we need. Your faith is not the basis of salvation, Christian. Faith is incredibly valuable. Faith is a gift and very precious, not for itself, but because it connects us to Christ. God himself, Peter says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is the center of salvation, the center of this construction toward Christ's glory as Savior, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The basis of salvation is the work and the resulting righteousness of Jesus Christ, says Peter. All who have true faith in Christ have the righteousness of Christ. And all who have the righteousness of Christ have Christ. Ephesians 3.17 says it in this way, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That is, they cast all upon him and they are united to him in faith. But soon, brothers and sisters, we will not have the scoffers looking upon us and scoffing and saying your faith is in something illogical. Soon we will not need to have faith to connect us to Christ any longer. Soon our faith will give way to sight at his second coming, which is one of the great themes, as we've seen in Second Peter. And we will be united with Jesus in perfect communion forever. And how wonderful a mystery this is, this mysterious truth which we will live in forever. In Christ's righteousness, we will see him as he is for all eternity. Remember, brothers and sisters, 
Remember the great and precious gift you have been given in faith, which is Christ himself. Remember how precious faith is in Christ. Remember the significance of what you already know. Remember and rejoice in the gift of faith in this God, in this absolute God, in the allotment of faith, because it brings us to Christ, the God-man, until he brings us to that day. Let us grow in faith and knowledge. And remember how worthy our God is of all praise, glory, and honor. For he alone is absolute, glorious, transcendent, reasonable, mysterious. He alone is worthy of faith and worship. Let us remember this, brothers and sisters, and worship God in Christ. The preciousness of his gift of faith, the allotment of faith, the gift of his son and his righteousness. Let us praise him until he comes, brothers and sisters. Let us go to him in prayer. O Lord, God who exists above creation, Lord, you were before ever creation was. And you are so glorious, Lord, we could never in our minds comprehend it. We can never comprehend you, Lord, and what a glorious truth this is. We pray, Lord, that as we are creatures and as we have ethically relationally been broken in ourselves, that before you we have sinned against you. We pray that we would realize these things and realize the, the wonder, the preciousness of faith, that we have like faith, all of us, with the greatest or the least, for it unites us to Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you in faith, that we as those people on earth, the kingdom of God on earth, that we would be the people of faith. Not a faith of some irrationality where we jump out upon something that cannot hold our weight, but that we would have knowledge and knowledge of you, the true God, and lay our weight upon you. For Lord, you can take our sins and you can take our weight and you bring us to that great day of redemption in your power. Come soon, O Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.